thank all of you for coming and joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we're continuing 3.9 as we start being the concept of talking through uh, the capitalist, uh, capitalist representation, I believe. Oh, fuck, I should have read the title. I've been digging through secondary sources too much. Um, a civilized capitalist machine. Uh, this has been a whole thing. Uh, I'm, I'm mostly just going to kick us straight into it, and so we'll just go ahead and start reading. Uh, as we go, if you have comments, don't hesitate to uh, uh, make, a, make a note in the chat. Uh, you should be able to unmute if you need to. Uh, but today we are going to be chatting through, it's, it's 2.30 Varun, uh, the phrase, let us return to the dualism of money. Uh, as we start getting into the difference between uh, the cash you get as an employee or the cash your employer makes on the other side of the entire operation. This shift is one that I've been really excited to build up towards, and we've been talking through the uh, up, up to this point. They brought up Keynes. They brought up a generalized market mar uh, Marxist analysis of how desire sort of functions through these things, how banking practice operates, and now they've broken things down to the point where we're going to have a conversation between those two sides, the dualism of money. So I'll just continue from there and we'll, we'll chat right afterwards. Um, here we go. Let us return to the dualism of money, to the two boards, the two inscriptions, the one going into the account of the wage earner, the other into the balance sheet of the enterprise. Measuring the two orders of magnitude in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of the same analytical unit is a pure fiction, a cosmic swindle, as if one were to measure intergalactic or intra-atomic distances in meters or in centimeters. There is no common measure between the value of the enterprises and that of the labor capacity of wage earners. That is why the falling tendency has no conclusion. A quotient of differentials is indeed calculable if it is a matter of the limit of variation of the production flows from the viewpoint of a full output, but it is not calculable if it is a matter of the production flow and the labor flow on which surplus value depends. Thus, the difference is not cancelled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature. The tendency has no end. It has no exterior limit that it could reach or even approximate. The tendency's only limit is internal, and it is continually going beyond it. But by displacing this limit, that is by reconstituting it, by rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of a displacement. Thus, the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in this break of a break that is always displaced in this unity of the skiz and the flow. In this respect already, the field of social eminence as revealed under the withdrawal and the transformation of the Erstat, is continually expanding and acquires a consistency entirely its own, which shows the manner in which capitalism for its part was able to interpret the general principle according to which things work well, only providing they break down, crises being the means imminent to the capitalist mode of production. If capitalism is the exterior limit of all societies, this is because capitalism, for its part, has no exterior limit, but only an interior limit that is capital itself, and that it does not encounter but reproduces by always displacing it. Jean-Joseph Gou rigorously analyzes the mathematical phenomenon of the curve without a tangent, 
and the direction it is apt to take in economy as well as linguistics. Quote, if the movement does not tend toward any limit, if the quotient of differentials is not calculable, the present no longer has any meaning. The quotient of differentials is not resolved. The differences no longer cancel one another in their relationship. No limit opposes the break, or the breaking of the break. The tendency finds no end. The thing in motion never quite reaches what the immediate future has in store for it. It is endlessly delayed by accidents and deviations. Such is the complex notion of a continuity within the absolute break. In the expanded imminence of the system, the limit tends to reconstitute in its displacement the thing it tended to diminish in its primitive emplacement. So very much here. So very much here. Uh, the note from Marx in, in Capital, I will quote, Capitalist production seeks continually to overcome these imminent barriers, but overcomes them only by means which again place these barriers in its way, and, on a more formidable scale, the real barrier of capitalist production is capital itself. There's so much Marx in this uh, that is broken down in a very unique way, and I'm not the hyper-Marx scholar, so uh, I would vote we take this bit by bit, and make our way slowly through. Um, First produces surplus value, and then where does surplus value go? That's a contradiction in and of itself. And, um, you know, where Marx thought this would lead to a breakdown, uh, Deleuze and Guattari are actually going to say this is what keeps the system running. So it's, um, it's very different than what Marx had in mind. Uh, if you could, could you give a, just a, a light summary of how Marx relates to this, what he said, and then we could maybe extrapolate from that from the first few sentences with their, as you say, going a little bit beyond Marx, because I think they are using Marx to critique Marx here um, a little bit. If you could just give a top line, because I know you've read a great deal more of this, uh, if you could just give a top line in general, and I know it's tough because we are talking about kind of a significant body of work, but a uh, top line of uh, what they're discussing here that is in relation to Marx, the idea of industrial capital and how it functions? Um, are you talking about industrial capital in the sense as like, um, I mean, you, you know, there's the distinction from Marx between industrial capital and financial capital mm. and in, in, industrial capital. Let, let's, then, the, then let's let's uh, step back specifically. Okay, so the, the opening here talks about the dualism money, two boards, two inscriptions, one the wage earner, which is the cash we have in our banks at the end of the day, we get our paychecks, and the other that on the balance sheet uh, for the enterprise. Uh, that, yeah. if, if you could sort of discuss and talk through Marx's version of that, because that, that is classic Marx right there. Um, right. I mean, uh, yeah, there's the famous equation uh, for starters, right? That, um, that there's a... So V plus C plus S, right? Um, so in order for uh, value to be produced, you need to connect uh, laborers with uh, capital, right? Um, as, and then connect those two with raw material. And uh, together with that, you get the um, general formula. Uh, is that what you wanted to I'm not sure. It's yeah, I mean that's that's basically yeah yes. Um, so so we have we have two forms of capital 
uh, two forms of money, two forms of inscriptions, two things that are happening. There's a dualism to money by nature within not just, I think, uh, our, our world, but inside of all of these things we're talking about, the, the two orders of magnitude, but using the same measurement. Uh, when we say that Jeff Bezos and his firm, or we say that Bain Capital has $5 billion, or that Jeff Bezos is worth, I don't know, $170 billion, I think last I saw, and then I say that I'm worth $70,000. I'm doing quite well, thank you very much. Uh, the idea of using the same, uh, uh, like that same measurement is to them the saying, it's a cosmic swindle, as if one were to measure intergalactic or intra-atomic distances in meters. Uh, how many meters is it to Alpha Centauri and how many meters is the width of a human hair? Measuring it the same is laughable. We wouldn't do such a thing, but we do with capital, with money, uh, to sort of treat them as if they're the same, to keep them uh, sort of together, to keep them measured the same, uh, ultimately. And the idea here that they then immediately dive into, and it's uh, this is where my marks uh, falls apart a bit because uh, I don't have as much of a background. <laughs> uh, the the falling tendency has no conclusion. The tendency of a rate of profit to fall is uh, the Marxist comment that no matter what, uh, the ratio of profit to the amount of invested capital always decreases over time. There is no bottom to this. There is no limit to this. It will just continue to go until ultimate ultimately you know collapse. I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what they're referring to here in this um, kind of chunky paragraph, right? They're talking about so Marx's hypothesis with regards to what what's what 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 will lead to the end of capital capitalism, right? This notion that you have uh, workers that are working more for uh, that are basically not getting paid for the work they do very general sense, right? You have unpaid labor. And uh, as this keeps on going, the system's going to collapse. But for Deleuze and Guattari, at least what they believe is that, you know, Marx was right in discovering that there's this system of contradictions. But this system of contradictions is actually what keeps the system running. It's what allowed, it's kind of like the precondition for capitalism itself is the contradiction. Yeah, it's um, so for Marx, the 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 tendency of profit to fall is because uh, you end up having to, in order to compete, because profit is is God in this system, uh, you have to reduce the wages of people, or you have to get things cheaper that come into the business. If you make uh, iPhones, you have to get chips that are cheaper. Uh, every dollar matters, and as such, it puts pressure on every part of the supply chain to reduce costs, which. There is no way to reduce costs of things. The really the only variable in all of it is how much labor is being paid in it. A mine uh, at the very beginning of most of these supply chains tends to have some of the more horrific conditions uh, and low pay because they're the ones who feel the most pressure from everyone to keep prices down. If those prices go right. up, it, it's, it's just the nature of uh, how wages sort of work because, again, profit is what matters. The pressure is always towards pushing down and lowering. And as such, profits for every part of the business are then also put on pressure from other parts of the business to have less profit so these other parts can have more profit. 
But as such, they ultimately become part of yet another supply chain. And then the pressure on them is to decrease. It's a really, if you've ever been involved yeah, so in, in large scale sort of uh, platform capitalism, it's kind of a thing you can see very clearly. Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with the term platform. I know that comes from like Nick Stern or whatever. But, um, you know, this also relates to an idea that's uh, sort of brushed upon in the first uh, the first volume of Capital. That's the uh, competitive law of production, right? That, you know, people produce for profit, not because of uh, some innate desire, but because conditions create situations where people have to produce for profit simply to survive. Um, and that's because of the contradictory relationships, at least for Marxist theory. So that goes back to what you were talking about. But uh, the scapegoat says, because capital's limits aren't contradictions or crises. Well, yeah, I mean, that sounds right for Deleuze and Guattari's estimation. That's why they're going against uh, Marx. Yeah, and I think one of the things they're doing, and they've been doing it with the calculus, which, again, I'm too stupid to fully understand, but by treating capital mathematically different than money, and I will displace that as, to me, when I use the term money, I'm meaning like I have dollar bills in my hand or in my bank account. Capital, I mean, is investment, banking, all of that. Uh, they use calculus not for money. They're not talking about it for money. We use addition, subtraction, and boring algebra for money. Um, for calculus to be applied, it means that these things grow on a curve and they have, as they talk about throughout this, their own way of growth and uh, fall ultimately and their own essential mathematics of how they go up and down. And I think that has, to me, what you're talking about, Varun, their, their core idea here that they're trying to get towards is this idea that the core contradictions that Marx was talking about that will ultimately bring about the end of capital, it's actually, they're saying here, as I'm reading it, and we've been reading it, they're saying here, no, 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 that's actually functioning as, as intended almost. That's, this is how it works, and this is how it survives. The beast is built this way. Yeah, I mean, um, if you want a simpler definition of Deleuze's sort of universal use of the um, differential calculus, you think of it as a modern twist on Leibnizian mathematics. So... Um, you said a simpler... Simple did you say a simple way just now before that sentence? Yeah. We got to work on your definition of simple. No, no follow me. And trust me, this is easy. Um, it's one of the easier parts of the laws, actually, I think. But um, so you have a, you know, here's a simple mathematical question, right? How do you find the slope of a curved line? Well, what you can do is you can make a series of very small lines. And uh, by making a series of very small lines ad infinitum, you could try and add them up and then find the slope. And that's basically what they teach you like day one of calculus. Um, but right after that, how do, you, how do you format this, right? Well, you can't go up to infinity. So how can you define infinity? Well, you could only define infinity now if we make, um, if we make it as a reciprocal formula. So we put the let's just say the infinitely small uh, of line X over the infinite, infinitely, sorry, I mean infinitely small of line Y over line X, the infinitely small of line X. And then we put them together and we have a, um, we now have a formula for this line. Um, if you want another even simpler way of formatting what he's talking about here is if you go to the ocean, right? You go to the beach, um, 
you basically you hear the sound of the ocean as one collective roar, but you never hear the sound of one single wave. It's the one single wave is just too minute. But when one single wave comes together with multiple waves, then you finally hear that sound. Um, it's kind of what he's saying, right? It's uh, things get things get defined through their contexts. It's also this is basically also his definition of the concept of expression, which you'll see in Logical Sense and his books in Spinoza. Um, and in that regard, you're talking about you know things like emergence and recipro reciprocal inclusion. I don't know. Is that helpful? I'm, I'm, I might be too stupid. Oh, I fucked up. Sorry. No, no. It's look. This, this is this is where this stuff starts getting in that very difficult place where it, this chapter is the kind of thing that spawns people as varied as Nick Land and and Mark Fisher and like all these other people. It it was a very good explanation overall, but there's like a lot of nuance in here. I'm trying to put my finger on because I don't think it's, I think there is simple ways to talk about it, but I don't think their intention is, is necessarily as simple as it may seem. Maybe I'm just overthinking it too. Hmm. I don't know. Sorry. You know, I, I still struggle with how exactly they apply this um, formula to um, Marx though, because when they apply, you know, dy or dx to Marx, that's when I start struggling a bit. I'm quite unsure about what's going on there. It's the... been... oh, no, no, please. I've, I've actually been trying to work that out myself. I, I think it helps if you, it's like there is a dualism of money, but if you, if you keep in mind the way economics talks about capital, which is to understand capital, not simply as money, but as what in finance you call assets, right? What the things you have. In fact, uh, just to read off Deergarf's glossary of international economics, right? Capital is the plant and equipment used in production, which connotes the means of production, right? Capital is one of the primary factors, the availability of which contributes to the productivity of labor, comparative advantage, international trade, a stock of financial assets or a bank's assets minus its liabilities. But if you if you walk that into what Deleuze and Guattari are talking here, even in terms of money, right? As far as the balance sheet goes, we're getting into, I think, the MC and, and those different um, not only the value form of money that Marx is trying to work out, which is being called into question here because there's no um, there's no common unit for Deleuze and Guattari because the context, like you're saying, is shifting. But I do think if you start walking out money and commodities as forms of capital, I think this starts to fit together a lot easier. And it actually starts to explain why the why on the one hand labor uh, labor and industrial capital has a hard time, well, I shouldn't say a hard time, is so different from the the aligned forms of um, the merchant and the financial capital. Because that's your that's your D of S and D and Y, right? He's they're they're working out how the aligned affiliated have all together shifted here into these forms of capital and and a few other things. I'm gonna keep us here, I think, for another moment, if you don't mind. Um, so let, let's if we can, let's this paragraph is one that I've I had trouble with a great deal last time, and I'm continuing to, and I'd like to spend a little bit time breaking down the different sentences if we can. Uh, rather than talk about the big idea, because I don't think I'm ready for that personally. 
um, if that's cool. The, if we move a little bit back, uh, I get up to where, thus the difference is not canceled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature. The tendency has no end. It has no exterior limit that it could reach or approximate. Grasp that, uh, the, this idea of a, of a, because of how it deterritorializes, re-territorializes, plays with that, there is no, there is no el, uh, exterior limit. The limit is internal, and it is continually going beyond it. That's uh, nature of capital. We've talked about this at this point. It's a lot more spelled out a little bit later. Uh, the tendency's only limit is internal. Uh, it's placing the limit, that is, by reconstituting it, by rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of displacement. Thus, the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in this break of a break that is always displaced. What is the break of a break, specifically? Is it the shattering of the limit and moving beyond it, the break of that limit? The break of an exteriority that gets pushed? So... If you if you think about it in terms of the binary law of um, like desiring machines, right, the connective synthesis, there's always right there's always three terms. There's a flow emitter, a flow breaker, and then there's the BWO, which we can kind of bracket out for a minute. When they say break of a break, I think they're talking about how so there's a, a, a flow being broken, but now there's a flow being broken in connection with that breaking. Um, so when you think about it, right, the, the, the connective synthesis here is being implied to be um, changing because the assemblage is shifting, which is going to affect the rest of production's production. As far as the limit goes, we can think of the BWO and the Socius here, I think, as, as standing in for the limit for a minute, because it, in a way it's about the falling rate of profit and this tendency, but I think it's also about understanding that um, it's not so teleological, what it is perhaps more, more intimately and more perhaps um, difficultly in a sense, because it's going to hit more personally, is the way that capital um, is pushing up against the limit, right? But at the same time, displacing it in order to overcome it. And it's doing that in terms of a deterritorializing, right? Where not only is everything shifting in what it does, but the actual flows and the way that they're moving are being entirely shifted too in order to kind of re reconfigure the limit, right? Because the schizophrenic creates new configurations. And that's kind of what you're getting here is this, this schizophrenic process of capital. Okay, so we have flows of goods, labor, blah, 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 everything is flowing into, through, uh, industrial, whatever it is, ultimately turned into capital as it's deeply abstracted. As it's turned into capital, uh, those flows, uh, through that connection, the connection breaks. Then we have the second, which is this sort of second bit, which is the flows of capital in capitalism, pushing up against this sort of, uh, barrier, the, the internal limit, uh, that exists, that's constantly being smashed against, broken, rebuilt, uh, that break, that break, I get the break of a break, the way that they phrase it here. I'm not seeing what the second break is, is the second break. I, I this is the part where I'm, is it, is this a reference directly to the, the thing they're talking about with Gu, where he talks about John Joseph Gu. I'm going to never angle. I'm going to tear apart his name. The idea of a curve without a tangent, uh, tends to be, uh, if we want to talk about the way these things look, uh, it looks like a stock market graph. It's these absurd 
ridiculous lines and curves on different tangents that have hard, hard resets, I guess you could say, where it's not like, oh, nice, smooth, simple. It's it's hard, hard clicks back into its own setup, hard pushes back into uh, different things. Uh, the lines are, the angles are hard. And that feels like a break. And it, it is the kind of thing you see. I'm trying to figure out examples of it in my head that I can attach this to because everything we've described, there is analogs for that I can attach to and how capital functions in our society or really in any society. The break of a break is the phrase that I get, I'm get. i getting stuck on. The uh, This, the, this break of a break that is always displaced in this unity of the schism flow. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm missing so it's, that. Um, it's the flow itself and everything, right? The limit is being encountered. It's now, um, so you've got a break taking place in regards to the limit. It's being displaced in the way that things are reconfigured. Now that's being broken with again, because capital um, shifts us again. It uh, overcomes the limit, right? So the contingency is only limit is internal and is continually going beyond it. But by displacing this limit, that is by reconstituting, right? So the, dis the displacement is a reconstitution of the limit. Uh, by rediscovering as an internal limit to be surpassed again by a means of displacement, thus the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in the break of a break. So it's not even simply that you have a crisis that um, causes everything to shift, right? It's that as you, as capital is reconfiguring the break with a limit, that in of itself is leading to the creation of a new limit, so a new assemblage, right? a new connective synthesis. And now that, with the reconstituted limit, is to be surpassed again, right? So you have two breaks going on contingent on the reconfiguration. I mean, I kind of think about what's going on after, like, they call it the meme stock stuff, but, which we talked about here before, you know, um, like the Wall Street's bets and things like that. There was a... I look at it like there was actually a um, kind of a shift in the limit because all of a sudden um, now everything's more and more uh, stocks are actually doing this kind of pull thing where they're uh, like, this was the Robin IPO. It increased 80% in two days. Right. And it's, it mirrors stuff that's going on with things like stitch bits and um, uh, was it AMC and GameStop. So you're seeing that on the one hand, right, the wall street that, there's kind of this investment made where they created, or they found, I think, a limit and displaced it, right, by taking advantage of this. And a revolutionary investment, I think, was made. And now we're seeing how that's become sort of more commonplace, right? Everything's being then reconfigured in a sense, if, if I'm going to kind of like simplify it to kind of fit this point. And in that re reconfiguration, now I think there's a whole way in which that is itself part of the, the reconstitution of the limit and is being broken with as capital tries to surpass what's become known as uh, the meme stock, right? That's the thing we're trying to move past now. But at the same time, we're kind of not because it's it's almost like our point of arrival, uh, our point of departure uh, in a weird way. It's like saying the crisis and the, so if you like do the Schumpeter thing, right? The crisis produces the like the um, the next stage, which is like the recovery. It's more about understanding how there's like all this shifting that's not really a, a crisis and recovery. It's actually a whole 
the way the limit itself is being changed, reconstituted, and now is being um, passed uh, passed over again. So it's a the phrasing maybe where I'm getting tripped up. It is the discussion of uh, the natural breaks in the flows, and that there is actually another break within that break, which is actually how capital functions. It's this the the breaks of things the the disconnections the destructions and then it actually utilizes on those breaks a new way of growth uh, this flows then the next sentence which they talk about the way that the erstat withdrew from the forefront uh and has over the last few hundred years uh and transformed significantly now we have a government and a state of middle managers yet still something that is uh in apparently uh, in total control, but doing so from a different position, almost subservient, but yet leading from below. This idea of capital continually expanding, having its own consistency, which shows the manner in which capitalism is able to interpret this general principle according to which things work well, only provided they break down, with crises being the means imminent to the capitalist mode of production. Um, wonderful a book called Disaster Capitalism that feels like they're pointing out as well. Uh, okay, I think I'm I think I'm grasp, grasping that better. Apologies that I went down this road, everyone. I'm just someone has to ask, <laughs> and I'm definitely dumb enough for sure. Um. Okay, I think I'm grasping that then. So then, when we start talking about Jean Joseph Gu, um, and his phenomena of the curve without a tangent, uh, the direction it is apt to take in economy as well as linguistics, his quote is is. I think summed up even within itself, no limit opposes the break or the breaking of this break. The tendency finds no end. The thing in motion never quite reaches what the immediate future has in store for it. Um, again, the to, to go back, uh, empty set posted about the Weierstrass function, the, the way, if you visualize curves without a tangent, uh, they very much, I mean, it looks like the stock market. I'm going to say that a thousand times, but uh, the whatever is falling, however it may, um, there isn't a consistent fall off because again, it's got, there's no, there's no tangent. There's no function uh, that's like natural and, and set up sort of within that. So it, it shifts. Uh, and as it shifts, new directions get found, new things get pushed. And I think that, okay, I think that makes sense to me. Yeah, because you're, what it means is you're, with the tangent, your inflection points are always shifting. So a curve, like you're saying, it's in a state of like, it's in a state of flux, right? I mean, that's, that's where we are. And so that's, you know, that's the interesting thing, right? Is because your limits are shifting, you're seeing this flux. And this is like the schizophrenic thing. It's, it's a reconfiguration contingent on a reconfiguration of that reconfiguration, right? So every, Every break comes with the, the, you know, the the replacement of the limit, which now we're going to displace again, and therefore cause a new break in relation to the previous, right? Yeah, I'm, and I'm going to say I think here again to get to the discussion we had last week. If I in my head start stop saying break flow and instead replace it with flux and start thinking about these as the, this makes a lot more sense to me intuitively. Just I mean even poetically, uh, flux inside of that this gives in the flux which is the original translation as well um the original french it's a the variability within uh is yeah, undefined derivative 
is a really good way to put it, empty set. That part I think I'm starting to grasp a little bit. Okay, uh, any other questions on this uh, paragraph or thoughts, please? Uh, now would be the time for sure. Oh yeah, well, go, ahead, go for it, Jack. I do have one I want to hit following the, because this balance sheet aspect is really interesting to me, right? Because we're talking about, we're talking about money in terms of, you know, capital, uh, in terms of like the cash that you were talking about, but it's right, like kind of your, your value form D or equivalent thing. Uh, you've got that balance sheet aspect of the assets. And I think that's really important because your point about profit on that, right? That, that is your income statement and all that. But at the balance sheet level, I think um, where they're pushing us is this question of output, because it's not just profit, is it, right? It's profit in relation to other economical concerns like inputs and outputs. And where they, I was really struck is where they write, a quotient of differentials is indeed calculable if it is a matter of the limit of variation of the production flows from the viewpoint of a full output, it's very economical, but it is not calculable if it is a matter of the production flow and labor flow on which surplus value depends, right? And so this is kind of the interesting thing, is it's not a question of, of the full output of the, the economy of the system, right? So it's not like GDP, to kind of uh, simplify it. It's a question of which that the surplus value depends on, which I think you've made an excellent point, right? If that's in these, these rate of changes themselves, Right. Well, yeah, you are going to encounter the falling rate of profit because the you know the rates themselves are in this constant um, flux in relation to each other. So you know it, it, it gets more flux, right? And of course, at a level of like assets and labor and um, profit, revenue, and cat and, and cost, right? The whole system is implicated. It's it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting phrasing. And again, it goes back to this fundamental shift in how we need to consider capital and money not to be the same thing. Very importantly, uh, money you buy stuff with, money you're paid with, capital is investment. Capital is, uh, they're phrasing earlier, dead labor uh, that feeds like a vampire on other labor in order to create other dead labor um, and continue its own sort of power and, and journey. That's not what money does. Capital does that. And this this shift in thinking through that and how capital functions and separating it from money, I think is a, there's a lot of power there to start thinking about it. Um, I will continue to the next paragraph though. Because um, we're now talking about the eminence of the system to finish the last paragraph. The limit tends to reconstitute in its displacement, the thing it tended to diminish in its primitive emplacement and the next paragraph. Now, this movement of displacement belongs essentially to the deterritorialization of capitalism. As Samir Amin has shown, the process of deterritorialization here goes from the center to the periphery, that is, from the developed countries to the underdeveloped countries, which do not constitute a separate world, but rather an essential component of the worldwide capitalist machine. It must be added, however, that the center itself has its organized enclaves of underdevelopment, its reservations, and its ghettos as interior peripheries. Pierre Moussa has defined the United States as a fragment of third world that has succeeded and preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. 
And if it is true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or to its equalization asserts itself at least partially to the center, carrying the economy towards the most progressive and most automated sectors, a veritable development of underdevelopment on the periphery ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value in the form of an increasing exploitation of the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. For it would be a great error to think that for it would be a great error to think that exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors or archaic territorialities. On the contrary, they come from modern industries and plantations that generate an immense surplus value, to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital, but quite the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced just once at the dawn of capitalism, but is continually reproducing itself. Capitalism exports filiative capital. At the same time as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, the decoding flows on the periphery develops by means of a disarticulation that ensures the ruin of traditional sectors, the development of extroverted economic circuits, a specific hypertrophy of the tertiary sector and extreme inequality in the different areas of productivity and in incomes. Each passage of a flux is a deterritorialization, and each displaced limit a decoding. Capitalism schizophrenizes more and more on the periphery. It will be said that, even so, at the center, the falling tendency retains its restricted sense, i.e., the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to total capital, a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and constant capital. There's a lot said here, too. Um, Samiramine is actually absolutely worth reading a handful of bits on. Uh, I did this the last time we went around. He's like a hardline materialist economist out of Egypt and absolutely wonderfully uh, basically is this idea of the periphery did come from him. This idea of global capital uh, was, I think, an early dissertation of his even. Um, the the way that he talked about it is the way they speak of it here. This idea of uh, the the narrative we tell now or we've told over the last hundred years or thousands of years, really, as imperialism has happened, is that we take our money and our riches and we send them overseas and we build industry and people make money because we are sending it there. This is, I mean, go talk to Republicans right now about how they see uh, overseas anything, um, to be frank. Uh, we put our money there. Thank God they have our money. They're lucky to have it. Um, uh, the reality is different than that. The phrasing they would use here is we send over our effectively dead capital, the vampiric capital that builds and utilizes these modern industries, which are there. Uh, this is even happening today in many places. Uh, I mean, it's happening everywhere. Uh, but we, we have these modern industries, but our capital, again, is this vampiric capital, and that is ultimately sucking the life out of labor and money and everything to bring life back to it. And that the money is actually, the capital is actually coming back from these countries to the center, uh, which has its own things and its own problems. There's a wonderful line in here, Pierre Musa says, that I will love forever as the idea that the United States is actually a fragment of the third world that succeeded but preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. There, this is 
a thing forever I would just love. Uh, it's such a good line. Um, I really love this. Um, uh, a blank name. Uh, oh, nomadic, nomadic subject asks, uh, is it a natural tendency of capital to form cyber technical systems and automaton processes, um, uh, rationalization of labor, bioprocesses? Uh, the, the tendency of capital is anything that increases profit. That's the pressure. And automation is one of those things that does that. As you're able to further automate the jobs, which means the, the actual labor, the cost of those becomes incredibly slim and, and standardized. Uh, there is a, again, if you need, you need to think of any business, not as a singular business, but instead as a supply chain and a, a massive supply chain and a networked one. No McDonald's stands on its own. McDonald's makes its profit based on how much labor in the entire chain. And that goes from the butcher at one end to the paper mill at the other, to the power company, to uh, the guy who makes their hats, <laughs> to whatever, wherever that happens to be in the world. And all of that together is where McDonald's is able to make its profits. It's why they become what's called vertically integrated. They want to control the entire supply chain setup. And as such, anywhere that there is a variability in cost that can be saved, they want to. Uh, now, they don't go, oh, this McDonald's, we can save money if we automate. It's not so much that. It's with a single employee, the cost is not just having that employee as labor, it's everything that employee needs to utilize. And that includes management, which you need to have to manage people. It's not the same thing as, as automatons. Uh, you need to have their clothing and the cost that there is around clothing because you know the only law we have in the United States that's good for workers is they don't have to pay for their own uh, clothing in most states, Jesus Christ. Um, but still, everywhere we have this setup, there's a, there's a little dollar that can be pulled out here. And if every employee can be replaced with a robot, you can save $20 a year in clothing. Or you can have that clothing guy have his shit replaced and have his shit fully automated, which means they're paying less because they don't have to worry then about their employees, conversely. And it becomes this sort of domino effect out. Again, the, the pressure is at every step because you have to remember McDonald's is also feeling pressure to reduce its prices by every company that it services. Uh, an example of that would be literally every business in the area because this is the people that come there ultimately need to have food and that's enabling other businesses in this capitalist system. And so that labor costs money for everyone. It's, it's, this is the way you need to think about it as a larger system. So there's always pressure to automate where possible because reducing labor means labor can be used elsewhere for cheaper. Um, uh, we've basically gotten to a point in this country, not to put a fine point on things I'm seeing happening right now, but if you haven't been to a Taco Bell recently, I was at one, people walked out while I was there, and I like stayed for an hour for tacos. I don't care, make fun of me for Taco Bell. It was amazing to kind of watch and uh, maybe egg on and cheer on these people who were very sick of their working conditions and just fucking left. And the poor manager who was there who got stuck, uh, like, I, I feel bad for anyone in any of these situations. Um, but they're, they're all feeling that same pressure. And it's pushed people down to the point where they're making poverty wages for normal jobs uh, that once upon a time actually were okay. They weren't great. They were okay jobs to have. 
that this is because of the entirety of automation across the entire landscape. Uh, this is not just, oh, it's just high school kids or it's just the uneducated. This is, everyone feels it. And it's because it's a hyper-networked system and all of it is technical reductions here. Oh, we don't need that here. You can automate that here. Anywhere you can pull labor out of it and have a thing be cheaper in the long run, that's the pressure. And it just continues all the way down. Sorry if that was too much of a ramble, uh, Normatic. Um, um, and and this, is a, this is a good place to draw more of what's going on with like the Martian stuff here in, in this chapter, right? Because in Martian econ, right, that would, especially Martian, like uh, humanism and that, it is like labor, uh, labor power, humans, and then it's the problem of capital in the way that it's shifting or diminishing uh, labor power, right? Because one of the, one of the ways you can think about capital in general sense is going to be technologies or machines, right? And this is one of the big shifts we're seeing in anti-Oedipus is that it's no longer uh, labor in relation to people. And then, right, that makes your L and then you have to deal with your, your K, right? If you know your econ. Um, but instead we're dealing with labor, uh, we're dealing with desire and desiring machines. And that desire in its processes of coding comes uh, with a codification of affiliated labor power, right? So this is one of the really interesting things that's going on here because when we're talking about desire, we're talking about it. And you can kind of see what Brooks is saying, right? This is kind of that like Holland-esque referent of, um, of, of desire because it's being coded as labor. You know, there's this interesting, um, to me, it's almost like a, like a tension on top between two poles, right? But it's interesting to see how desire and labor are being brought into this relationship. Um, but also the way in which something like labor power kind of appears um, as that, that object tending to concretization, right? As that desire that is moving to the concrete. Yeah, and it's when we start talking about how the, and again, to go back, please read Samir, I mean, wonderful stuff. Um, when we start talking about the periphery, uh, the the third world countries again, it, his phrasing and other phrasing. This isn't just the U.S. versus you know uh, Bangladesh or something like that or parts of India. Although that's definitely the case. It's it, there is a, a center to capital and then the periphery. It's done by countries quite often, but there is a lot of breakdown in it, and we have to think about it as a global setup. And when we talk about that, the first thing you see is these decoding flows as they start moving in. As they say here, uh, the on the periphery, these develop by means of disarticulation that ensures the ruin of traditional sectors and the development of extroverted economic circuits, a tertiary sector, and extreme inequality. Um, uh, an example of this to me is coastal Southeast Asia, which is filled with palm oil trees or uh, coconut trees. Uh, and it's, uh, if you haven't done a deep dive, by the way, on coconut trees, one of the more fascinating sort of examples of this is inside of coconuts and how they've sort of operated. Um, I, I did a really long rant on Reddit about this, trying to correct someone who was really wrong in economics. Um, but it's a really fascinating story about how they, these families have for years had lots of coconuts. It's great. And then uh, they didn't like overdo the land. They just had enough in the area. And then a hundred years ago, we started, we, the Royal, we, the, the 
imperialist assholes uh, came in and started saying, oh, we love coconuts. We'll buy your land and we will pay you to run your own land, which is a great promise. And we basically overindulged the pioneers, coconut trees everywhere. And we're nearing the end of coconut trees being uh, valuable. Uh, they only produce for a certain number of years. And right now we're starting to see the end of the first sort of round of that. And uh, it takes like 15 years for coconut trees to produce. So now there's going to be this time where we just go, oh, well, we're not going to pay as much for coconuts anymore. They're dying off. And so what, what's going to happen? How does it work? This destruction of those, in those sectors, the traditional sectors, everyone there is a coconut farmer now. They're starting to repurpose the farms back into more traditional style farming. They're trying their best to do it. That's not an easy thing. But we've destroyed that. Uh, the Hawaiian Islands are another great example. Um, uh, if the island of Lanai, uh, all of the islands are good. Island of Lanai was owned by the Dole Pineapple Corporation. Well, there was a some other big corp that owned it before that. They just fucking clear cut everything and just had like shit tons of pineapples everywhere. And then now there's none because uh, that's what happens uh, as this goes. It's really terrifying. Yeah, to, to comment on that more, right, so this is the second great deterritorialization, right? So the first great deterritorialization being the despotic, and that gives us a lot of insight into how paranoiac processes work. But now we're seeing, um, you know, in a sense, more schizophrenic processes coming to a head, right? Um, and this is very interesting with this deterritorialization, because I think what we're getting out of this at large, too, though, um, so right, this answers the question of how does it spread? Why does it spread? What's it doing in the spread, right? So how does capital become socius? How does it take over from the despotic? Um, and how is the despotic included um, in that, right? Which we'll get into more with chapter four. But to that point, I, I think it's worth um, just for, to focus on a sentence where they write, um, because they're talking about development and underdevelopment, right? And there's a way in which um, I think this can be misconstrued. So they write, and if it is true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or to its equalization asserts itself, at least partially at the center, during the economy toward the most progressive and the most automated sectors, a veritable so-called development of underdevelopment, on the periphery ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value in the form of an increasing exploitation to the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. Uh, they go on later to talk more about the surplus value and the way that that's, what's exported is um, affiliative capital. And that's really important because we're seeing how the, the second synthesis is involved in the, um, not only the second great deterritorialization, but capital spread. And so to that point, I just wanted to um, to mention in relation to all that, this interesting point to me is that um, with the development of underdevelopment, right, we're seeing how once again, this is a question of um, the limit being displaced, reconfigured to be displaced again, right? How a break produces another break. And I guess I should add to that, all tied to the, the rate of surplus, um, to, to this question of surplus value, right? So this is the what is the socius doing, right? It's producing the surplus value through falling back on production, yeah. 
you know, I think this is a really nice way of um, tying the syntheses into this explanation and showing how it is falling back on production, the deterritorialization and that, but how you're also seeing um, the, the development of, um, of these coding processes and re-territorializing re-coding processes in that process through the fallback. And it supplies so much to things that are happening right now. So much, so much. Um, I will continue now. This problem was raised again recently by Maurice Clavel in a series of decisive and willfully incompetent questions. That is, questions addressed to Marxist economists by someone who doesn't quite understand how one can maintain human surplus value as the basis for capitalist production while recognizing that machines too work or produce value, that they have always worked, and that they work more and more in proportion to man who thus ceases to be a constituent part of the production process in order to become adjacent to the process. Hence, there is a machinic surplus value produced by constant capital which develops along with automation and productivity, and which cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency. The increasing intensity of the exploitation of human labor, the diminution of the price of the elements of constant capital, etc., since, on the contrary, these factors depend on it. It seems to us, with the same indispensable incompetence, that these problems can only be viewed under the conditions of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. In defining pre-capitalist regimes by a surplus value of code and capitalism by a generalized decoding that converted the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux, we were presenting things in a summary fashion. We were still acting as though the matter were settled once and for all at the dawn of a capitalism that had lost all code value. This is not the case, however. On the one hand, codes, exist, codes continue to exist, even as an archaism, but they assume a function that is perfectly contemporary and adapted to the situation within personified capital, the capitalist, the worker, the merchant, the banker. But on the other hand, and more profoundly, every technical machine presupposes flows of a particular type, flows of code that are both interior and exterior to the machine, forming the elements of a technology and even a science. It is these flows of code that find themselves encasted, coded, or overcoded in the pre-capitalist societies in such a way that they never achieve any independence, the blacksmith, the astronomer. But the decoding of flows in capitalism has freed, deterritorialized, and decoded the flows of code just as it has the others, to such a degree that the automatic machine has always increasingly internalized them in its body or its structure as a field of forces, well, depending on a science and a technology, on a so-called intellectual labor, distinct from manual labor of the worker, the evolution of the technical object. In this sense, it is not machines that have created capitalism, but capitalism that creates machines and that is constantly introducing breaks and cleavages through which it revolutionizes its technical modes of production. It's also, by the way, a really great answer to your earlier uh, comment there. Uh, normatic that we're biological bootloader um the humans and the pressures of it are i i i don't think my explanation goes against this uh, earlier um it's this idea of 
capitalism creating machines doing its best to remove the human element the labor element <laughs> from it um the idea of the personified capital uh the capitalist the worker but ultimately the blacksmith the astronomer those things are being slowly removed um any any questions any thoughts here please uh, i'll give it open for a moment uh, up to this point, can you relate this to the uh, empty set? And the, um, we're talking about the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the tangent. And... Uh, I cannot link anything back to anything calculus. Uh, I, someone else might be able to. Um... I, I can give it a shot for you. So it, again, it's a question of limits being displaced or reconfigured, right? And the way in which now they're going to be. Um, they're going to pose a new problematic, which is the, the overturning of that limit, right? So if we're looking at what's going on here, we're seeing the deterritorialization and how flux, how there's this, this question of um, the surplus value that's being produced uh, through the affiliative and the alliance, right? That the socius is um, producing. So the question is what's going on between this shift from the despotic production of a surplus value of code to the capital production of surplus value of flux, right? And how does that relate to the limits that are established in different assemblages? Um, so if we're looking here, right, what they're going to focus on, one is they're going to focus on, like I said earlier, they're going to get away from this like humanism and move into uh, desire and machines and pointing out that there's a coding that is um, implicated in that kind of humanism, right? But there's also a way in which the, the machination is uh, itself being produced. The second point they're going to hit on, or the second point I'm going to focus on that they hit on, is this point about uh, the shift. So they go on the right. But on the other hand, or, excuse me, but on the other hand, and more profoundly, every technical machine presupposes flows of a particular type, flows of a code that are both interior and exterior to the machine, forming the elements of the technology and even the science. It is these flows of code that find themselves in casted, coded, or overcoded in the pre-capitalist societies in such a way that they never achieve any independence, the blacksmith and astronomer. So on the one hand, we've got this We've got the role of coded flows that we're seeing still circulating, still being contemporary with what's going on in um, in capital associates, right? Which made sense because we still talk about things like the blacksmith or what that is today. Um, so you still have those coded flows of desire bound up in the production of flux, not discarded. Then they go on, but the decoding of flows in capitalism is freed deterritorialized and decoded the flows of code just as it has the others to such a degree that the automatic machine has always increasingly internalized them in its body or structure as a field of focus while depending on the science and technology on a so-called intellectual labor distinct from the manual labor of the worker so what i think is going on there is they're talking about how the Right, so the internal external limits are respectively capital and capitalism, if I remember correctly. They're talking about how the limit of capital, the internal limit of capital, is being developed through processes of deterritorialization, while still being extended into the um, 
I think, some of the exterior parts of these flows of desire and code. So that when you have a break in the assemblage, um, to try and put, a, put a, a simple light on it, so that when you have a break in the assemblage, right, during the production of the surplus value of thoughts, that is going to imply both the, the coded and decoded flows as they're producing that surplus value of thoughts. And that is going to be bound up with the break in relation to that limit, which is strengthening at the internal level, but now being reconfigured in that break. And so as the connective synthesis now shifts and a new, new connectivity is formed, now the limit is reconfigured as well. And that limit, that reconfigured limit, um, is now being uh, transgressed as well. And so as these deterritorializations and codings continue, right, that is going to shift with the new limit and the new break that is going to be um, implicated, right? Like it's like your point of departure and point of arrival are all within the reconstitution of a limit. Len, I would add, uh, Boskard has a great line there. Um, I'm gonna steal for this because as we're talking through, again, uh, to go back specifically to this weird uh, curve without a tangent uh, thing uh, and talking through that, the the change that has happened also within capital, and I think this last like four sentences here are really important to this. Um, production isn't just production of things now for human consumption. Um, the change has become where the objects or the machines themselves are now part of this this capitalist flows. Uh, to quote Boskard, the light bulb's invention doesn't stop at its perfection for human use, but its adequate incorporation into economic demands. And this economic demands, this is the the nature of the rise and fall of capital, profit, demands, the push, the pressures that are happening with that. And so that's not just the light bulb only, that's across the board, that's these technical objects are no longer created for these elements. And because of this, we need to sort of flip on its head. Again, another thing that, and it may, may have just been how I was taught about these things, but um, that uh, industrialization is what allowed capitalism to exist. And that's the, the idea of the loom or the cotton gin, I think is how I was taught in high school that, uh, well, oh, that's, that's, these are the things that now we had capitalism and these are the things that made Marx angry. Um, and uh, they didn't mention Marx, but like, like, that's the idea. I think the, the flip of that they're saying here is, no, it's, it's not the machines created capitalism, but that capitalism creates machines, that the pressures of the system and the way that the system works, that technical objects themselves are now part of these flows of code and these breaks and become essentially this sort of centralized element, this automatic machine that in internalizes the codes in its body or its structure as field of forces. Well, depending on a science and a technology, on intellectual labor, distinct from manual labor, this this shift is not the thing that created capitalism, but capitalism created these technical machines, uh, these technical modes of production. And I think it's an interesting shift as well. Uh, I was just comment on that. I think you want to be careful there, though, too, because that is the narrative, right? Capital is about producing innovation and all that stuff. But I, I think what you said at the end is, is more the critical thing, the adequate incorporation economic demands, because... At that level, I think it's a question of how does the production of something like a light bulb differ in the three soci? Because you're going to have alliance or political and economic concerns 
bound up in what's going to make the light bulb's production possible um, regardless, right? And I think that's the critical move is not that, um, you know, capital is kind of hypocritical, but, but that production itself is shifting in each of the associates. To read Empty Set, Marx basically makes his point about the conditions of the English working class before mass industrial expansion. Before that, people were literally worked to death in such a noticeable fashion that one generation was markedly less healthy than the last. Uh, yes, the Dickensian London would be a, just an awful place. <sighs> but several correctives must be introduced in this regard. These breaks and cleavages take time, and their extension is very wide-ranging. By no means does the diachronic capitalist machine allow itself to be revolutionized by one or more of its synchronous technical machines, and by no means does it confer on its scientists and its technicians an independence that was unknown in the previous regimes. Doubtless, it can let a certain number of scientists, mathematicians, for example, schizophrenize in their corner, and it can allow the passage of socially decoded flows of code that these scientists organize into axiomatics of research that it's said to be basic. But the true axiomatic is elsewhere. Leave the scientists alone to a certain point. Let them create their own axiomatic, but when the time comes for serious things, for example, non-determinist physics with its corpuscular flows, will have to be brought into line with determinism. The true axiomatic is that of the social machine itself, which takes the place of the old codings and organizes all the decoded flows, including the flows of scientific and technical code for the benefit of the capitalist system and in the service of its ends. That is why it has often been remarked that the Industrial Revolution combined an elevated rate of technical progress with the maintenance of a great quantity of obsolescent equipment, along with a great suspicion concerning machine and science. An innovation is adopted only from the perspective of the rate of profit its investment will offer by a lowering of production costs. Without this prospect, the capitalist will keep the existing equipment and stand ready to make a parallel investment in equipment in another area. Nicely draws back on your point about uh, shifting cash flows. Well, and it, and it gives us a place to, uh, when people talk about the studies that come out or crazy ideas that may change the world or cool things scientists are doing or engineers or apps that come out and, you know, whatever it is that have their, that seemingly seem directly opposed to capital uh, or uh, against that setup. It's like, oh, this look at this crazy shit these people are making. It's like, yeah, they well, anyone can do that to a point. Now, wait, wait, Seri it's time for serious things. Now let's, let's do this now. Here we go. Thank you so much. It's lovely. Um, and we've got now this capitalist thing. Oh, good. You've done, you've had your fun time. How fun is that? Now let us think about how to make money off of this. Um, uh, easy example. Uh, um, not in service of the capitalist goals, the wonderful team of scientists at Oxford developed a pretty extraordinary uh, vaccine and were set to make it completely open source so anyone in the world could produce it and we could have a vaccine free for all, including impoverished countries. Uh, that was allowed for all of 20 minutes before Bill Gates showed up and threatened to pull all of his funding for all of Oxford if uh, they didn't sell it to a company that he happened to be invested in. And they did that. 
It's time for serious things now. I love the idea. Oh, it's such a good idea, but really, let's be serious now. And this is why people prefer Apple, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Apple Apple doesn't do anything evil. <clears throat> no. No, it's that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. No, it's it's one of those things that um America as a country, and this is most industrialized countries, are simply falling apart. If you actually were to go into the vast majority of what we would call factories, the machines haven't been changed in years, years. Um, they're kept up, but they're not changed. They're deeply ob obsolete. And it's specifically what he's talking about here. It's not something that's changed, but he, he speaks of it right. They speak of it right here the maintenance of a great quantity of obsolescent equipment, despite this extraordinary rate of technical progress. Uh, go to any major, when I say major company, I mean like huge, massive company. Uh, they don't have the latest windows. They're not running on, like even at a basic technical level, um, most of them are unable to really handle phones as being part of their daily lives. Uh, I think the US military still has Windows 98 computers. These things exist. Um, the obsolete equipment, um, is just there. The, the leaps that happen is kind of a bullshit thing. Uh, the line here is so great. It's at the end An innovation is adopted only from the perspective of the rate of profit. It's investment will offer by lowering production costs without this process. The, the capitalists keep the existing equipment and stand ready to make parallel investment in equipment in another area. That's all that matters. It, uh, we saw this a great deal with the with COVID, actually, and we've see, seen this since the beginning of the supposed shutdown. Um, we, we've now been a year and a half into this. Masks haven't changed. Like, we're not getting new masks. People aren't spending on new masks. Uh, they're just kind of the same ones we had, and they're being a little bit more mass produced. But people have offered to build such things. People have designed some pretty extraordinary ones. None of them uh, have profit on their side. None of them. Uh, these things don't change because of that. It doesn't lower production costs. I don't give a shit. And they don't get adopted. Period. Um, because that's the, that's the thing that matters. The axiomatic underneath it all. Well, and this is part of the strangeness of it all, right? In, the, in our in our production through these um, these uh, these different technologies, like you're talking about, the, the the shift in technology from something like a floppy drive to a CD, or now we're just at the cloud, right? We don't even need floppy drives. But that's kind of the weird thing about it, right? If we walk this into desire in that, we do want to shift. Um, with technology, we want the, the, the floppy drives to give way to the cloud and that. But at the same time, they're, they're making the point that um, we also seem to want it um, cost effectively, or otherwise there's this kind of, um, we might say there's this disjunction going on, which is kind of interesting to walk in here too. But it is interesting in that our production here, right? It's not simply that the, the CDs themselves just produce us, it's that in their relationship with capital associates, right? We find ourselves even connected with those flows of desire where things like, you know, the bank infrastructure or um, like the Pentagon, those kind of easy examples, actually are connected with us in certain ways and do produce our desires in ways that we, we really wouldn't be aware of. 
until well, we need like a it's like that Kevin Hart joke, right? You need three days to, to shift the money from your savings to your checkings. <laughs> well, it's 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 there's a level of truth to that. It's a lot of this is pointing towards the again when we go back to that difficult fun calculus thing. The the point of that is talking about how these uh, there is uh, excess and the production of this excess flow and and this this excess within capital does the surplus and how the surplus creates more surplus creates more surplus and kind of is ongoing. But here we come back around. Innovation is only adopted if it enables this surplus. It's not a, hey, you know, I found a better mousetrap. It's cool. Can that mousetrap create more surplus in this grand system we have? If not, excellent. Keep moving on. And that's, uh, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge, you could say. Spot on, because the surplus can be produced otherwise, right? Yes. I mean, the surplus can be produced by paying labor less. <laughs> like, that's cool. I'll do that. Fuck, fuck, fuck people. And it's, and it's not, I, I mean, I, we're going to end up having to do, I want to try and make my way through this. We're going to end up doing like an entire session, just talking through sort of a lot of the implications of this stuff, because there is a lot in here that is really important. Uh, but I do want to continue. We'll jump to the next, um, next bit uh, thus the importance of human human surplus value remains decisive even at the center and in highly industrialized sectors what determines the lowering of costs and the elevation of the rate of profit through machinic surplus value is not innovation itself whose value is no more measurable than that of human surplus value it is not even the profitability of the new technique considered in isolation but its effect on the overall profitability of the firm and its relationship with the market and with commercial and financial capital. This implies diachronic encounters and countersectings such as, and countersectings such as one already sees, for example, in the early part of the 19th century between the steam engine and textile machines or techniques for the production of iron. In general, the introduction of innovation always tends to be delayed beyond the time scientifically necessary until the moment when the market forecasts justify their exploitation on a large scale. Here again, alliance capital exerts a strong selective pressure on machinic innovations within industrial capital. In brief, there where the flows are decoded, the specific flows of code that have taken a technical and scientific form are subjected to a properly social axiomatic that is much severer than all the scientific axiomatics, much severer too than all the old codes and overcodes that have disappeared. The axiomatic of the world capitalist market. In brief, the flows of code that are liberated in science and techniques by the capitalist regime engender a machinic surplus value that does not directly depend on science and techniques themselves, but on capital. A surplus value that is added to human surplus value and that comes to correct the relative diminution of the latter, both of them constituting the whole of the surplus value of flux that characterizes the system. Knowledge information and specialized education are just as much parts of capital, knowledge capital, as is the most elementary labor of the worker. And just as we found on the side of human surplus value insofar as it resulted from decoded flows, an incommensurability or a fundamental asymmetry, no assignable exterior limit, between manual labor and capital or between two forms of money, here too, 
on the side of the machinic surplus value resulting from scientific and technical flows of code, we find no commensurability or exterior limit between scientific or technical labor, even when highly remunerated, and the profit of capital that inscribes itself with another sort of writing. In this respect, the knowledge flow and the labor flow find themselves in the same situation, determined by capitalist decoding or deterritorialization. But if it is true that innovations are adopted only insofar as they entail a rise in profit through a lowering of costs of production, and if there exists a sufficiently high volume of production to justify them, the corollary that de derives from this proposition is that investment in innovations is never sufficient to realize or absorb the surplus value of flux that is produced on the one side as on the other. Marx has clearly demonstrated the importance of the problem. The ever-widening circle of capitalism is completed while reproducing its imminent limits on an ever-larger scale, only if the surplus value is not merely practiced or extorted, but absorbed or realized. Is there a paragraph break here? If the capitalist is not defined in terms of enjoyment, the reason is not merely that his aim is the production for production's sake that generates surplus value. It also includes the realization of the surplus value. An unrealized surplus value of flux is as if not produced and becomes embodied in unemployment and stagnation. It is easy to list the principal modes of absorption or of surplus value outside the spheres of consumption and investment, advertising, civil government, militarism, and imperialism. The role of the state in this regard within the capitalist axiomatic is the more manifest in that what it absorbs is not sliced from the surplus value of the firms, but added to their surplus value by bringing the capitalist economy closer to full output within the given limits, and by widening these limits in turn, especially with an order of military expenditures that are in no way competitive with private enterprise, quite the contrary. It took a war to accomplish what the New Deal had failed to accomplish. The role of a politico-military-economic complex is the more manifest in that it guarantees the extraction of human surplus value on the periphery and in the appropriated zones of the center, but also because it engenders for its own part an enormous machinic surplus value by mobilizing the resources of knowledge and information capital, and finally because it absorbs the greater part of the surplus value produced. If everyone's looking at my copy, I'm 99% sure I skipped a fucking paragraph break. I apologize for that. There's a lot in here. Um, and this will probably be the last paragraph we do because it's going to take 15, 20 for us to get through, I think. Because, again, giant paragraph. Um, one of the things that happens very commonly, and you'll see this very often in, I'm putting up air quotes, leftist circles today, but it was no less common then, more common perhaps, is the idea of um, the people who work white-collar jobs are not part of labor. They don't believe themselves to be as such um, college-educated, um, rich, well-paid. Well-paid would be the way to put it, not necessarily rich. The, the way to think through these elements and the knowledge capital and the way knowledge is utilized is treating it very much uh, as the same as labor, that ultimately they exist as such and are exploited the same way. I've worked in video games for a long time. Um, if you don't, you should follow Jimquisition. 
Uh, she's wonderful, uh, fantastic uh, YouTuber. Goes on about this at length about this in the video game industry. It's a it's an industry of you know college educated, purely knowledge people who absolutely have their labor used in this way, and how they have their labor used or the technology they use, how these things are set up. The I know it's just games, but we are talking at that point about technical machines and uh, the surplus value that doesn't depend on, oh, you're using a new engine, you're using new software, you've got new this, new that. Almost none of that is actually the thing that excites capital. It's uh, how much, how little they can pay the team or how much work they can get out of them for what they're building. The, the first part of that is really a push in my head, in my mind, how I'm reacting to it towards that. If anyone else has another thought, I'd love to hear it as well. I know Jack's not here and most of you are not used to talking at length, but I'm very open. Um, but a lot of this is a response to uh, things you'll hear technocrats and Democrats even these days say that innovation is what spurs uh, adoption, uh, that spurs capital growth, these kinds of bullshit things. Um, this is a response to that sort of mentality, the belief that, well, technical machines also increase the value. It's like, yeah, no, no, it's... We, we innovations wait until they're capitally capitalist required until they're the flows of the system find them necessary uh the market forecast justify their exploitation on large scale instead and this is again alliant capital um exerts a strong selective pressure on machinic innovations within uh there where the flows are decoded the specific flows of code that have taken a technical scientific form are subjected to a properly social axiomatic much more severe, uh, the world capitalist market, the pressures of capital and profit and surplus. Uh, these flows of code that get liberated in science and techniques, uh, these technical machines by the capitalist regime, have a machinic surplus value that does not directly depend on science themselves, but actually on capital, a surplus value that is added to human surplus value. This is knowledge capital, as he's describing it. And there's some amazing books written about this uh, from a handful of people. Um, I'll, I'll post a few. Um, the platform capital, I think, is a, a play towards this as well. Um, but this, this again, this, uh, this gulf that we've talked about, where it's uh, manual labor and capital are two forms of money, here too on the side of machinic surplus value, uh, resulting from scientific and technical flows of code, there's no commensurability or exterior limit between science or technical labor, even when it's paid extremely well and the profit of capital then inscribes itself with another sort of writing. This places knowledge flow and labor flow in the same place, ultimately, on, we'll say, this side of the, the capital that, that grows, that changes, that runs things, the flows on that side. Um, the widening circle of capitalism uh, is completed, uh, reproducing its imminent limits on an ever larger scale. Uh, uh, David Graeber's bullshit jobs is 100% uh, towards this, almost. Um, it would almost be a, like an, a, a continuation of this. I don't think we had bullshit jobs in the same way uh, that exists now, for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, this is for sure in that direction. Um, at any point, by the way, anyone feel free to interrupt me. I'm now just kind of going through the paragraph and breaking it down uh, until someone else talks. Ken, I'm looking at you. Um, let's talk about the second half of this, which is about the imperialist machine, the war machine, uh, as we might call it, the in military industrial complex and the way the state, uh, 
plays its role within the capitalist axiomatic. This whole thing is a, a Western critique, uh, global now perhaps, but very much towards America. And we can be seeing this pretty cleanly in what's happened the last 20 years in Afghanistan and a lot of the countries that we're in, 20-some wars, I believe. Uh, the role of the state in this regard within the capitalist axiomatic is the more manifest in that what it absorbs is not sliced from surplus value of the firms, but added to their surplus value by bringing the capitalist economy closer to full output within given limits. Uh, if we remember back, we go back towards the despotic times. The the way that the state, um, the Urstadt, uh, worked is it sort of sat on top and sliced off surplus value and distributed it, uh, mostly to the despot, to be frank, but around. Uh, that was kind of what the Urstadt did. Uh, now, the Urstadt doesn't slice off surplus and distribute. Instead, it actually adds to surplus value by widening the limits and doing more within specifically military expenditures, the imperialism of the system that is not competitive to private enterprise. This is uh, another, I don't think any of, I hope no one here needs me to explain why, but uh, war is not competitive. Government spending in these things, especially military, is not competitive to private em enterprise. Uh, the, on the contrary, that spending uh, refills the economy. The role of a politico-military economic complex is the more manifest in that it guarantees the extraction of human surplus value on the periphery and in the appropriated zones of the center, but also because it engenders for its own part an enormous machinic surplus value by mobilizing the resources of knowledge and information capital, and finally because it absorbs the greater part of the surplus value produced. It's an amazing critique of modern state. Love that. All right, that's fine. I will uh, continue on to the state, a little bit more on the state. And then we'll get back to the scientific and technical worker. Um, Ghostgird says, an interesting conclusion of this, though somewhat anthropomorphic, is that the state neither wants to collect taxes nor provide the welfare program said taxes, even if only facially would have paid for. Um, I think that that depends. Uh, there's a lot of European countries that would say the state is very excited to collect taxes and distribute and do, does so, or even cleanly, openly says that they do so uh, in service of the economy. Yeah, it's a really interesting breakup of it and talking through um, that the state is not a competitor to private enterprise. Uh, again, I hope it's not a thing I have to necessarily explain. Uh, it's a very right-leaning talking point that the state is this thing that hates corporations. Uh, it's almost laughable in its practice. Um, but here we start getting into uh, how the state functions and why. And this paragraph's the big one on that. The state, its police, and its army form a gigantic enterprise of anti-production, but at the heart of production itself, and conditioning this production. Here we discover a new determination of the properly capitalist field of eminence. Not only the interplay of the relations and differential coefficients of decoded flows, not only the nature of the limits that capitalism reproduces on an ever wider scale as interior limits, but the presence of anti-production within production itself. The apparatus of anti-production is no longer a transcendent instance that opposes production, limits it, or checks it. On the contrary, it insinuates itself everywhere in the productive machine and becomes firmly wedded to it in order to regulate its productivity and realize surplus value which explains 
For example, the difference between the despotic bureaucracy and the capitalist bureaucracy. This effusion from the apparatus of anti-production is characteristic of the entire capitalist system. The capitalist effusion is that of anti-production within production at all levels of the process. On the one hand, it alone is capable of realizing capitalism's supreme goal, which is to produce lack in the large aggregates, to introduce lack where there is always too much, by affecting the absorption of overabundant resources. On the other hand, it alone doubles the capital and the flow of knowledge with a capital and an equivalent flow of stupidity. This also affects an absorption of a realization and a realization and that ensures the integration of groups and individuals into the system. Not only lack amid overabundance, but stupidity in the midst of knowledge and science. It will be seen in particular how it is at the state, the level of the state and the military that the most progressive sectors of science, scientific or technical knowledge combine with those feeble archaisms bearing the greatest burden of current functions. What would be an example of anti-production? Um, it's advancing. Um, yeah. uh, Loomer, did you have a, real quick, uh, just to go with you, Kate, um, I think anti-production is more difficult to sort of describe. We need to think about it not as uh, antimatter that cancels out, but instead the production of lack. Uh, anti-production is the production of lack. Uh, lack is not a thing that sort of exists transcendentally as it does with Lacan. Uh, it's produced uh, actively. Uh, it's, it's a part of the way things are. Oh, uh, it's a part of the productive forces. I'm just going to read Normatic Subject's line. It must be destroyed so that another part can continue to produce. A machine may be damaged or even destroyed, but the labor power that operates it cannot. Uh, great examples of anti-production that pop into my head as you ask um, is uh, uh, diamond industry, uh, I think is a good one. Um, they kind of talk about that pretty cleanly, but you could also say the same thing applies to the great lines from Grapes of Wrath of how uh, vast swaths of food and goods had to be destroyed uh, so as not to uh, eliminate the, the profit on the other side. Uh, the diamond industry does the same thing. We, we, we know actually that diamonds aren't exactly that rare, um, especially since they can be produced at, at large now, but we need to create things that get in their way that slow this down, that, that block this, the apparatus of anti-production is that of lack, creating lack in not just the society and blocking things, uh, stopping us from uh, sort of continuing out uh, very, very far, but instead uh, keeping the interior limits in their place, I think might be a way to put it. Does that make sense? Did anyone else, please? Uh, I'm Anti-production is one of the things that I'm currently like really trying to dig into because we're about to get into it big time again. And it's a thing that we went into. It's it's part of the uh, uh, the creation of lack within uh, the molecular as well. Anti-production is a thing on both sides. And we're about to really get into it because anti-production is kind of a core thing within schizo uh, analysis as well. So there's a lot to go through for that. Um, let me see what I can find. Uh, please, JK, go ahead. Yeah, it would be like um, the continued use of outmoded machines when there's, you know, uh, in new technologies that can replace them, or uh, or maybe uh, the uh, destruction of uh, machines that continue to um, that uh, that can work, but the 
that they're determined to be obsolete, even if they're not. I'm going to read a little bit from uh, uh, Holland's uh, interpretation of this this little part, because there's a lot that I'm going to be reading through when we get to the point. But um, filiative capital, uh, uh, capital becomes filiative when money begets money, uh, value surplus begets value. It, filiative capital is, is capital that generates itself, not alliant capital, which is a different thing. Uh, filiative capital has in effect taken the despot's place as focus and basis of social investments. And however extensive the lateral exchange relations of alliance, which is trade, become as the market continually expands, the infinite debt is still owed to capital as the source and ground of extended filiations based on the anticipated production of ever graded quantities of surplus value. The infinite debt owed to owners for past investments in effect mirrors the infinite production to which labor power will be devoted now and in the future. This is the context in which anti-production ceases being an end in itself and becomes imminent to production, functions merely to absorb excess product and insert consumption into the cycles of ever-expanding surplus production. This is the context, in a word, in which asceticism, infinite labor to pay the infinite debt, uh, Weber's Protestant work ethic, as an example, becomes the rule of capitalist subjectivity. Uh, if you haven't been on Instagram lately and seen the uh, horrifying number of channels and posts and YouTube channels about how to get, you know, take on the day, be a beast, uh, how to be successful and all of these things, this demand, uh, this bragging, I work hundred hour weeks every week and I haven't seen my family in years. I am so awesome. Um, that asceticism, the infinite labor to pay the infinite debt is, is a significant part of this. Christian crypto, I please send me links, Loomer. Oh my God. Christian crypto as a thing. I love, I love so many things right now. The world's so fascinating. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, just it's getting there. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it'll continue. It's a, it's a strange, um, their use of anti-production uh, as an element. And again, not like antimatter, it's not something that cancels out production. Uh, think of it as uh, almost like Tetris blocks being inserted in the way blockages. Uh, they talk about a great deal earlier with anti-production and lack. Uh, again, lack is produced, lack gets placed in production. It's things like that. Uh, the, the ascetic nature of things uh, is very much towards that direction. And it, as we say that, and then I say the next sentence, um, on the other hand, it alone doubles the capital and flow of knowledge with a capital and an equivalent flow of stupidity that also affects an absorption of a realization and then ensures the integration of groups and individuals into the system. Anti-production and asceticism does this. These axiomatics start playing into a different place. And I actually am going to read the next paragraph because I think it uh, works nicely and then we'll discuss the states afterwards. Um, that'll be next week. Here, Andre Gort's double portrait of the scientific and technical worker takes on its full meaning. Although he has mastered a flow of knowledge, information, and training, he is so absorbed in capital that the reflux of organized, axiomatized stupidity coincides with him, so that when he goes home in the evening, he rediscovers his little desiring machines by tinkering with a television set. Oh, despair. Of course, the scientist has such as as such, has no revolutionary potential. He's the first integrated agent of integration. 
a refuge for bad conscience and the forced destroyer of his own creativity. Let us consider the more striking example of a career a imerikine, with abrupt mutations, just as we imagine such a career to be. Gregory Bateson begins by fleeing the civilized world, by becoming an ethnologist and following the primitive codes and savage flows. Then he turns in the direction of flows that are more and more decoded, those of schizophrenia, from which he extracts an interesting psychoanalytic theory. Then, still in search of a beyond and another wall to break through, he turns to dolphins, to the language of dolphins, to flows that are even stronger, stranger and more deterritorialized. But where does the dolphin flux end, if not with the basic research projects of the American army, which brings us back to preparations for war and to the absorption of surplus value? And uh, the line hits me. I, if you don't know a lot of engineers, um, 100% um, people who do some of the more amazing jobs you'd think uh, in science or engineering or development, even software development, um, their work is so uninteresting that they will go home and work on their own projects. Often they'll build models, paint things, design their own stuff. Uh, it's kind of incredible, but it's uh, the freedom of chase, of their, their views, of where life wants to take them. They enjoy the freedom of model painting or tinkering with a television set, the rediscovery of their desiring machines. Um, yeah, Boskerd nails it. Uh, system engineers smarter than I'll ever be spend their time as Disney adults. Uh, Warren Spector has a house. Warren Spector is a, a wonderful game developer. He made a Deus Ex. Uh, he's just systems guy. He's very famous. Has a house of Disney shit, like a literal house of Disney shit. It's wild. Um, he's a very Disney person. Very Disney. So the the American version, the Gregory Bateson story is, uh, we'll say, an allegory towards not having this happen to you, sort of as a cautionary tale, if you will. Um, wonderful set of work. Um, wonderful, odd uh, stuff that he did. But very much uh, the the push sort of for him was this line that he moved and studied things and he really dove into it and played with schizophrenia in these spaces and the ecology of things and cybernetics and, and like really did some amazing stuff and ultimately came around uh, to um, having research. The, the American government believed dolphins were going to be a type of soldier. It's a, it's a weird thing, but hey, you know, people are weird. Um, and a lot of that does get taken up by the military industrial complex. Um, uh, any questions or comments at this point, I'm going to go ahead and end the reading for today, but please, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have anything else, um, we have more to read and then we'll do, um, I think, cause we'll start from in comparison with the capitalist state bottom of 238, 238 and it'll be, uh, bottom. And then next week we'll get through the rest and then the week after we'll do a full review, um, which I think will be good because there's a, just a ton inside of this and some secondary sources I think are worth reading, uh, some of Holland for sure, but there's breakdowns of most of the concepts in this uh, section uh, by secondary authors, third 
you know, third level authors, people who've read the read the secondary materials and put some of their own stuff together. It's kind of amazing. There's a lot. But please, any questions right here? And then Loomer, I will get to your you know what, Loomer, what's your question? You've been waiting too long. You got you've got one from like super early in the book, but please. All right. Did we lose Loomer? No, I got my my finger slipped off the thing. Oh. They're in on page twenty seven in section one point four, they're talking about desire and lack and how desire actually comes first, I think if I got that correct, but, um, you did. There's a point where, uh, they, they talk about revolutionaries, artists, and seers are, are content to be objective, merely objective. They know that desire clasps life and it's powerfully productive embrace and reproduce it in a way that is all the more intense because it has few needs. Is that related at all to the Nietzschean, uh, Dionysian concept? I have to go back to Deleuze, Deleuze's book on Nietzsche. Um, I don't think it's far off the the conception there. Um, I don't think that they've addressed it directly. I know we had someone who, uh, I want to say it's Webcam Parrot, uh, would be a person to ping about this because uh, he he very much uh, talked about this the first time through. I do think it's connected. I'm not Nietzsche expert person, so it's a tough one. Um, but I do remember someone saying such a thing when we went through it. Uh, it'd be worth, I'd go back through the recording because I, we did talk through that because. Okay, uh, cool, I'll do that. Yeah, because the, the, the entire concept of lack, and again, lack being produced as part of this, we should be, it's, it, it's worth going back through. I might do that this week because as we're talking about the, mo the molar versus the molecular, we're now in the molar having this discussion about anti-production and lack and all of these things. Um, functioning is not different like it's there's there's some machinery that may change but the function these things play and how they work is not wildly different uh, human social machines and desiring machines at the molecular are operative at the same level and we, we can learn from one we can learn from the other so it's a good thing for us to go back over yeah i noticed that when i jumped in and i was reading i was basically reading the parallel of what you guys were talking <laughs> talking about just now earlier in the book yeah it's it's a there's a lot of crossover and it's uh when we get to the the full reading i have a whole bunch of stuff from holland uh, because holland takes that and runs with it a lot of his work is very much about like the psychoanalytics essentially of society and combining the two and talking about how this functions here and talking through you know where the crossovers are it's a really amazing uh that's why I love his interpretation uh, personally. Uh, his reading has struck me always. Um, Sweet, thanks. Uh, I'll take. I'll keep that as a note to look at later. Yeah, the, the production of lack is fascinating. Um, I, I will just put uh, Holland's uh, introduction to schizoanalysis. I'll drop it in the the chat in two seconds. Um, let's see, where is it? Uh, Holland, boom. Uh, come on, come on, computer. Um, yeah, just to read a little bit. Uh, Capitalist anti-production thus culminates not in the transcendent glory of, say, the Palace of Versailles, but in the morbid greed of what Deleuze and Guattari refer to as the politico-military-industrial complex, among other things. For what the production, and especially the realization, of surplus value require, given the inherent tendency of capitalism to overproduce on a continually larger scale, 
remember, it doesn't have a fucking limit. It just goes and goes and goes and demands things that increase that limit. It's constant. It's gorging itself. There, there is a vast system of anti-production installed at the heart of production itself to keep its wheels turning by absorbing overproduction. Such was the intended effect, for example, of Keynesian economic policy in the New Deal, though it was really achieved only by the Second World War and the nuclear arms race, and such is the ongoing function, Deleuze and Guattari suggest, of advertising, civil government, including the state, its police, its army, militarism, and imperialism. It is only when people can be convinced that they are lacking something, anything from the latest fashion trend to national security, that they can be induced to consume and produce at an ever-increasing rate the capitalist economy requires. The debt owed to capital remains, like that of the despotism, unidirectional and infinite, but the system of anti-production under capitalism has become imminent to the system of production, and has, as its motive force, only further production of surplus value for its own sake. Consumption as the realization of surplus value is not an end in itself, but merely the means of securing liquid capital for reinvestment in the next cycle of social production. Versailles got nothing on Los Alamos is a great way to put it. I like that post. Uh, but with that, I will uh, end our stream. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, apologies for getting a little bit of a slow start, but we'll uh, get to the rest of this book some point next week and then uh, re review the week after. Uh, there's a lot here and it's part of the stuff that I'm super interested in right now for a lot of reasons. So I look forward to uh, chatting and talking. Thank you all for coming.